We're going to think about marriage and uh, sexual relationships this evening. And it seems to me that there are two very extreme views about marriage which you can detect. First of all, there's a very negative view about marriage which basically sees it as, as unnecessary and, and undesirable. You know, the, the comment goes, well, if most people who get married get divorced, so what's the point of getting married in the first place? And so uh, many people decide that they're going to live together and not, not worry about getting married. And then there's a, a, the other extreme, there's a, what we might call a, a Disney view of marriage or a fairy tale view of marriage, which imagine, ima- imagines marriage will put everything right, okay? It's the sort of the hero who arrives to rescue the maiden who's in distress, they fall in love, they get married and they live happily ever after. Uh, but within the few, first few weeks of marriage, they realise that that is a fairy tale. Uh, things don't work out quite like that. Uh, my wife might beg to differ, but, uh, but, that's <laughs> but that seems to be a, a, the other extreme. Now, the biblical view of marriage is a very positive view of marriage, but it's not based on fairy tales. Okay? In modern society, we've tended to separate sex from, from marriage. And one reason for that is, is over the last 50 years or so, the, the uh, development of reliable forms of contraception. But unlike uh, that, the, the Bible doesn't uh, divorce the two, if I can use that word. Okay? They, they're considered together uh, and uh, we need to understand that. that's what we're going to try to understand from scripture this evening and so I want us to start by you getting involved getting into the bible and and reviewing what scripture has to say uh, on this topic and we're going to be starting right at the very beginning back in Genesis because that's where we get our foundations and then we're going to move through. Now, there's a lot of scriptures there, and I'm guessing I've, you may want to divide them between you somehow. Okay, if I could call you to order again. Thank you. Good. try and review those scriptures now, and uh, try and pick together, pull together all that the scripture teaches. We start at the very beginning in Genesis before the fall, uh, and we see there the uh, Bible establishing the nature and the standard for, for marriage, especially verses 24 and 25. Okay, We notice earlier on that Adam is created first. That's significant later on. Okay, uh, He's a relational being, and that shouldn't surprise us because the God who created him is a Trinitarian God and, and is in a relationship and has been in a relationship from all eternity. And so Adam is also created in the image of God and what, one aspect of that is, is he's a relational being. But no companion can be found in the animal kingdom and so God creates a woman uh, out of his side. Uh, and she is a true companion for him uh, and his delight is expressed in verse 23 for us, isn't it? And this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of, of man. It was a, uh, almost the first song of a human being uh, is a love song, we could say. And uh, so we have this picture, and then we come to verse 24, which is really a key verse in understanding the, the nature of the, of the marriage relationship. Okay, firstly, we see that there's a leaving. The man uh, leaves his father and mother. And that word is a strong word in the Hebrew. It's the word that's used for desertion. So that, that leaving is, is, uh, is very... Uh, it, it indicates the, man's, the man putting to one side his obligations to his, to his parents. Secondly, we notice there's a uniting... Uh, and uh, that speaks of a bond which is continuous, uh, that's permanent, that cannot be broken, that word does there. And thirdly, they become, we see, one flesh, and we could understand that in a sexual sense, but we can also just as easily understand it in, this, in, in the forming of a new family unit that's created when, when these two people uh, are married. And notice the order. There's a leaving, then there's a cleaving, then there's one flesh. But in our present culture, that seems to have got all mixed up, doesn't it? And in this context, verse 25 takes on greater significance because it relates to the relationship that this man and this woman have entered into, this marriage relationship. And we often think of that in a physical sense, uh, but it can be true in lots of other senses as well. It, it, there's, uh, this, the, the, this, this couple were naked, they felt no shame. We can think of that in an, an emotional sense, in a psychological sense, in, in a spiritual sense. There's no feeling of shame between the couple because there's no sin and there's, there's a perfect love between them and a perfect trust between them. Uh, and in, under those circumstances where there's, there's, there's love and there's trust, then neither feels threatened or, or inadequate. And it's the oneness of the man and the woman that seems to be the, the prime concern at this point uh, there's no mention of, of, of children being the reason for, for this couple being married although we could say it's assumed because it's mentioned earlier isn't it because uh, God instructs them in chapter 1 and verse 28 to be, to be fruitful and increasing number so there's, a, there's an assumption there but it's actually the oneness of the man and the woman which is the important point at the end of chapter 2 so we could summarise what we've said so far in this way. We've got the nature and the standard of marriage is established in Genesis 2, 18 to 24. There's leaving, there's uniting or cleaving, the old version has, uh, and one flesh. And there's no shame, and that speaks of the mutual love and trust that the first couple had. And that's oneness which is the primary concern here although procreation is assumed from the earlier verse. Any comments on that, first of all, before we move on 
to the, the case after the fall. Okay, let's, let's move on then and think about marriage after the fall because the rest of Scripture really is concerned uh, with, with post-fall. Uh, and we see, don't we, in, in chapter 3, verse 7, and also in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, that one of the immediate effects of the fall is, is vulnerability and, and fear. They are two immediate effects. That the, a lack of trust enters into this, this relationship between the man and the woman. Uh, and they realise their nakedness. They feel vulnerable. Uh, and so this perfect marriage has now been spoiled by, by sin. And we see in verse 21, if we jump over a few verses, that God makes garments of skin for Adam and Eve. Uh, now, it's been suggested that, yes, this, this, could, be the this could be the first sacrifice uh, of an animal for sin, and uh, we'd agree with that. But also, if you think of, of what garments do, garments have a protective and a defensive nature as well, don't they? And there's perhaps the hint here that sex will not just be used for good purposes. That it actually will be used for bad purposes from this point onwards. It will be abused. It will be used for self-gratification. It will be used for rape. And so there's that idea in, 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 in the garments that are created uh, by God. And then... We come to chapter 4, verse 1, which is the first reference in the Bible uh, to sexual relationships uh, and resulting in the conception of, of, the, of the first baby. Uh, the Hebrew word there that uh, the NIV translates lay with is actually a Hebrew word yada, which, which is sometimes translated as, as, as to know. Or as the old version has, says, Adam knew his wife. And that's a, perhaps an appropriate way of translating this verse because it speaks of the intimacy of the, uh, of the sexual act, doesn't it? Sex is more than just a physical act. It, it's a giving act. It's uh, one person giving themselves uh, fully or wholly to the other person. It's other person-centred, we could say. And so the idea there of knowing somebody in, in, in lots of different aspects is, uh, is an appropriate use of the word. Then we jump over uh, a few chapters, a few uh, a book or so, to the commandments. Uh, and there are two commandments in particular that relate to, to marriage. Uh, there's the... Uh, 7th and the 10th commandments. Can you remind me what those commandments were? Can you remind us what the 7th and the 10th commandments are? Yes. Yeah. There's the not committing adultery and there's the not coveting your ne the neighbour's wife. And really these are there to protect marriage, if you think about it. They're there to protect the exclusive nature of, of marriage. Uh, 
from anybody who would seek to break up the marriage bond. That's, that's why they're there. And then we come to Leviticus 18, which is a long chapter about various sexual sins. And we see there that the wholeness and the completeness of, of, of sex is only to be found in marriage because all these other possible uh, examples of sexual relations are, are, are prohibited by the word of God. Adultery, sex outside of marriage are forbidden in those, those verses along with lots of other sexual sins as well. And we've seen in Leviticus 20 verse 10 that even the penalty for adultery is, is death. Now we might, from our point of view, think that's extremely harsh. But it, it does emphasise to us the seriousness with which God views uh, sexual and, and marital infidelity. Okay, that we must at least get that from, uh, from that command, even if we think it's harsh or not. Now, we move then to the prophets and to Hosea in particular and also Jeremiah. And we see how in the prophets, the relationship between God and Israel is likened to a marriage relationship. God's covenant relationship with Israel is likened to the covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And just as Israel was to only have one God, we can infer from that that, that in marriage there should just be one partner, it should be monogamous. Uh, and uh, the man is to love his wife just as God loves Israel. Uh, that's what we're, we see from those passages. And, and fidelity is expected. The man is, is, is supposed to remain faithful to his wife, just like God remains faithful to Israel, and Israel is supposed to remain faithful to God as well. That's all assumed in those, those passages. Now, when it comes to the Gospels, we move into, as we move into the New Testament, we see that, well, there's not a lot said on marriage in the Gospels. Uh, we might be surprised by that. Uh, we can assume, because Jesus went to a marriage ceremony at Cana, in fact, his first miracle was performed there, that Jesus had a positive view about marriage. We can, we, we can be certain about that. Uh, but G Jesus then spoke about divorce, didn't he? And we've got those verses, or at least some of the verses, in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. And we can see from those verses that Jesus' view was that the marriage vows should not be broken. They were unconditional. It was a permanent bond. Uh, and the marriage obligations could not be easily set aside so any thoughts on where we're up to so far I wanted to stop a bit earlier than that I forgot but is there any, any comments on, on what we've, where we've gone so far ok then uh, we move on 
Paul talks something about sexual relationships in, in 1 Corinthians in particular. And again, he, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 5, he, he uh, explains that sex is a giving act and that marriage partners should not abstain uh, without mutual agreement. Okay? He, he, he emphasises this point that was made earlier, really, that, 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 that it's, it's a mutual self-giving uh, act uh, it, within a, a loving relationship uh, where one partner gives themselves to the other partner. And they shouldn't abstain unless uh, there is, there's mutual agreement. And he uses the example, doesn't he, when, when, when a couple want to devote themselves to prayer. Uh, he also talks about divorce uh, and his, his uh, statement about divorce is that Christian couples, and he's talking to Christian couples at that point, uh, shouldn't divorce uh, even if they have to separate for a while. That reconciliation uh, should be always uh, an option. It should be, and it's the best outcome if a Christian couple have to separate for whatever reason. Now, we might want to talk about that a bit later because it does open up a can of worms. I'm, I'm aware of that. Uh, but that's the teaching of Paul in those verses. And then we go to that, the passage in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul likens the marriage relationship to Christ's relationship with the church. Uh, and we see uh, the unconditional love which Christ shows for the church should be mirrored in the unconditional love that a husband shows for his wife. Uh, and just as Christ is head of the church, so the husband is head of the family. Uh, and we see that the wife is to submit to his headship. Um, now, in a modern society where equality is, is promoted, the idea of submission is, is thought by many to be old-fashioned and, and wrong. Uh, but this is the willing submission of love. It's not something that's coerced. Uh, and neither does it imply that the woman is in some way inferior to the man. Remember, at the beginning, God created the man and the woman... They were created equal. They were, they were made in God's image. And that really is where Paul's argue, first argument comes from. It's one of creation. Uh, it comes from that idea that the husband is the head of the wife. That Adam was created first, Adam, uh, that Paul says. And so that within, within the marriage relationship, uh, he has headship for that reason. Uh, there's a, a divinely uh, ordained hierarchy within, uh, within the, the way that Adam and Eve were created uh, and that follows through into the marriage relationship. And the second argument Paul uses comes from redemption. Uh, Paul uses, as we've seen, Christ's relationship to the church as an analogy for the marriage relationship. And just as the church submits to Christ as its head, then the wife 
is to submit to her husband as her head. And the church does this willingly. It's not, we're not coerced to love Christ, are we? We don't do it with our arm behind our backs and made to. It's a loving submission because of what Christ has done for us as redeeming us as his saviour. Uh, and then, and finally, we're told about church leaders uh, and in particular the overseers in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. And they are to model this um, relationship. Uh, they are to model uh, a, a good uh, marriage relationship. Um, and the argument goes, well, if a man can't be faithful to his wife, how can he be faithful and tr trusted in the church to lead the church correctly? Uh, and so that, that comes out in that. And uh, so, as Nigel said a minute ago, elders, we're, we're only to have one wife, and that's a good thing, he said, because he couldn't handle any more than one wife. That's... <laughs> uh, but what about, I want to think about a question about sex and marriage in the new creation, when there's a new heaven and earth. Is there going to be marriage there? Is there going to be uh, sex in the, in the new creation? Well, you remember the Sadducees asked Jesus a question, didn't they? It's in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, and uh, they come to Jesus and they have this long tale about this there's this um, couple who are married, the man dies before they have kids, and so in, in the tradition where she would then get, go to the next brother, and, uh, and he dies, and they don't have kids, and so on. Uh, and they do, they do this to, to try and you know, trick Jesus into, or, or to test Jesus on the subject of the resurrection of the dead, because the Sadducees don't, don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, we're told. And Jesus says, doesn't he, that they, there will be no marriage in heaven. Uh, and uh, the reason for that, one of the reasons for that, is that there's been no need for procreation. Uh, we, will, we will live forever uh, in the new creation, and so there will be no need to have children to prolong our line. But there's another interesting verse as well I just want to, 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 to finish with before we, we talk about this or discuss this. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. And it's right at the end of verse 12 where it says, again, talking about the new creation here, now I know in part, talking about the current creation, then... I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And perhaps it hints here, there's a hint here of a deeper reason why there'll be no need for marriage in the new creation, in that we will be fully known. In other words, we will know each other fully. There will, there will not need to be that intimacy with, with, with one person because we will all know each other uh, fully. Uh, now
Now, I don't know if that's reading too much into that verse, but it does suggest that we're going to have a deeper knowledge of each other and of God, of course, when we're in the new creation. So there would be another reason why we don't need uh, to, be, to be married for the intimacy that we have in this life.